0: Hello everybody, welcome back to the latest episode of the Telegraph Rugby Podcast. What a weekend, especially at Twickenham, where I think the best way to describe it was a bit of a massacre. I'm Ben Coles and I'm joined in the studio by Charlie Morgan. Hi Charlie. Hello Colesy. And I'm joined virtually by Charles Richardson. Hello Charles. Hello everybody. Charles, you were up in Edinburgh, I believe. How was your how was your trip up there? Was that fun?
1: Yeah, it was glorious. The weather was delightful on Saturday, and it wasn't too bad on Sunday, despite the very ropey forecast. Um, and we had a cracker of a game yesterday. Scotland, obviously, which we'll come on to. Scotland, obviously, excellent in the first half, but then Ireland inevitably gripped them in their vice in the second half and were comfortable winners in the end.
0: Ireland, despite playing with seemingly every member of their pack getting injured inside the first half, which is quite impressive.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean who 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 knew Josh Van der Fleer could throw into a line out like that? I think Scotland left them off the hook a little let them off the hook a little bit but it was still mightily impressive.
0: Was he Vander really impressive? Van der Flying them in at the line out. Is that what you Yeah, he was, yeah. Okay, sorry, it's terrible. Um <laughs> Charlie, we were at Twickenham, which was uh yeah, I mean it, good in some ways if you like rugby and then not so great if you like England, was it? A treat watching France, a treat watching a side that
2: were clearly fired up with some exceptional individual players who who all kind of turned up. And do you know what? It was one of those. I had a feeling I'm, I'm allowed to kind of admit it now. I can't remember how, how deep I went into it in the podcast before, but I thought I thought England might nick this. I thought they had a two weeks building up to it and I thought they could get um, could stay in the fight. And be there long enough to win it with a home crowd, kind of winning them over the line. If they were really precise with a lot of things that they did, that went out the window. I, I went out the window. I remember kind of getting the escalator up to the press box and looking at the team sheets and going, "Gee, do you know, France look a bit France look a bit good with Dante back in there, and that that back row looks looks pretty tasty as well." And geez, it unravelled very quickly. An early try when it is forecast to team it down in about half, when. After twenty minutes of the game it was always pretty handy, but the way France kind of kept the foot on the throat was
0: uh, was impressive a world cup statement you weren 't the only one who felt that way because when we heard from all the players and uh, and the coaches afterwards from England side they they w- had been quite confident that they would be able to get a result and we 'll we'll get into the the horror of it and, and I guess the beauty of it as well because France really did play some cracking cracking stuff i mean but firstly guys, if I can just ask you for a quick highlight from uh, from the weekend. Charles, I will come to you first. What was your favourite bit of play?
1: Well, in keeping with the fact that I was at Murrayfield yesterday, I suppose I should pick something or someone from Murrayfield, and I will go with Matt Hanson. Matt Hanson's second-half performance, at least. Um, solid in the first half, barely put a foot wrong, and obviously finished his try very well, but in the second half, he was an absolute joy to watch, and verging on unstoppable. Um he, caught brilliantly let for the box kick for that um low try in the corner that put them ahead, and then h- putting in him putting in jack conan for for, for Ireland's final try their third try. it just looked like there was nothing on he's got he's for a winger he 's just got this wonderful sort of awareness and knowledge of his peripheries and ball in two hands sucked in that van der merver. Created space where it didn't look like there was any, and, and Conan the number eight went in virtually untouched. Really, that he, he, you know, Van der Merwe was never ever going to be able to recover. And I was I was in awe. Really, he, he, I mean, he's whisper it quietly. He's with with the ball in two hands. He's a little bit of a campo about him.
0: I mean, that, but that's a good reference because Australian supporters must be watching him playing for Ireland and tearing it up and thinking, what on earth have we done? Because mm-hmm. he's been performing so well. Um, Charlie, if I swivel my chair towards you, what was your what was your highlight? I think you know it. You're, you're right next to me
2: for it. Um, so much to like about the Ireland performance and um looking forward to getting stuck into that later. But Antoine Dupont's left-footed twenty-two 22 um, was mesmerising, partly because clearly England came with a, back, uh, a plan to kind of nullify and, uh, France's kicking game and get on top in that area. But So for him to mug them off so comprehensively Um, with just a sublime piece of skill the deception with how he twisted his body and then the strike itself it it almost happened we're we're clearly so privileged where we get to sit for these games so you can see it and you've got a great view of it all playing out in front of you but yeah awesome
0: it really was for those of you familiar with the uh the gif of um, Thierry Henry and Jamie Carragher when someone, when someone got sacked live on Sky Sports a few years ago, where Henry sort of turns to Carragher with a shocked face and puts his leg on Carragher's knee. And then Carragher just looks at the camera going, It was Brendan
1: Rogers or it? Of
0: what, was that it? Was it Brendan Rogers? Yeah. It was essentially like that between me and Charlie. Because I looked at Charlie and he was just looking at me like mouth agape at what had just happened. It was, a, yeah, incredible moment. I, I would, that was probably my favorite moment. But for variety, I'll go with Rhys Webb's performance for Wales getting player of the match because that really sort of came from, uh, from left field, sort of the way he sort of came into the team and completely dominated the game. I mean, brilliant box kick to set up Rio Dias' try, had to break for Tulipo Faletel's try. Just really interesting to see a player like that roll back the years and play so well. Always looks like he's super happy, super just relishing playing for Wales as well, which is really
2: nice in this cynical time.
0: <laughs> that is a lovely uh, lead-in to the first the first big discussion of the day. England against France. Okay, let's get into it. Right then, Charlie, I'll, I'll start with a very simple question and we're then going to talk about it for about 15 minutes. Where did it all go wrong for England, do you think? There's a few entry points here, aren't there? We
2: We often kind of have situation where a team's preparation and it can be as as trivial as something like a load of drop passes going down in the warm-up or whatever and then that never seems to have a um there never seems to be a connection maybe between that and the performance but it was a weird fortnight lead up to this game wasn't it with mark smith going back to harlequins and then it becoming um with gab Mayers breaking the story that he was going to start in the game um always felt like an odd decision that jarred with what had uh, gone before as far as other coaches. When you, when you get released to your club, you, we were kind of conditioned to think that that was going to be it for Marcus Smith's chances for, if not, if not playing, then certainly starting. But that came to pass that was kind of becoming more and more clear towards the end of last week. Then he did. So you had that build-up going into it. We've subsequently learned, I think it's being reported by the BBC that, um, Courtney Laws was potentially going to start as well. He was ruled out by, with a shoulder injury on the Tuesday, I think. So a little bit of disruption by England, but, but you still thought, you know, they've, they're getting better. They're getting better. The hallmark of a Steve Borthwick side is that they'll be tough. They'll be deliberate. Um, from the very first ruck of the game, do you remember what happened? There was, a, there was a France turnover, there were six England players on the floor, including Jack Van Portfleet, trapped into the ruck by one of his own players, including Carl Sinclair, who was taken out by Paul Vilemsa, who, who tackled Freddie Stewart. And France should have scored within 40 seconds. Um, Cyril Bay, who's normally a fantastic decision maker on the ball, didn't, didn't make use of a big overlap outside of him. Um, but it took two, two minutes and they scored from another, ca- uh, another counter-attack because there was a poor poor kick in there from Van Portfleet. And just every every aspect of the game that had seemed so solid and had seemed like it was progressing against Wales, albeit slowly, fell apart in a really alarming way. And, you know, Owen Farrell made the point afterwards, didn't he, Ben, you were in the huddle with him, that you can't really question the intent of players. And I, d- I agree with that to a certain Certain point, but England looked meek, and that'll what that's what will hurt Steve Borthwick the most because he's renowned for his detail. He's renowned for kind of planning up to these fixtures and, and making sure that a lot of a lot of these strategies are in place. It was hard afterwards when England was saying our plan didn't work. Our plan didn't work. It's tempting to say sort of, can you please like, just expand a little bit on what you we were trying to do because that wasn't really clear. There were a few quick lineouts which suggested that they wanted to run France off their feet. But by the end of the game, by the end of the first half and then by the end of the game, they looked gassed twice. They also mauled more.
1: They also mauled more than they they had done in the first three or four games, I think, which also also seems surprising considering they'd spoken in the week about how big this French pack was, how muscular and aggressive and abrasive this French pack was. And I know... The, the thinking might have been to sort of tie them in, but I don't understand why they didn't revert to what they were doing against Scotland and a bit more against Italy, whereby they were dummy mauling at these lineouts to hold that back in and then playing quickly. I, I don't know, it just seemed... It, it did seem a little bit muddled. Having said that, just... Obviously, I watched it on the television because I was I was in Edinburgh, but... <laughs> I think I think the context is surely that that is one of if not the greatest french performance of all time. I mean to to uh, away from home to go and completely uh, annihilate really uh, one of their biggest rivals who hadn't been playing too badly up to that up to up to that game was was quite phenomenal and being kind, I think you have to put this down to an off day for england and, and that it's not part of a of a deeper malaise this is this is not a pattern we wouldn't we didn't sit here last week and say that it had been building to this and that we all saw this coming you know this this came out of the blue out of the blur if you will
0: Well, oh, i i i like that a lot i just just on the it feels a bit weird to sort of focus so much on one on one rack in particular and but it but it did the first rack did sort of Highlight so many issues with the game because JVP sort of just gets sucked into that ruck. He sort of trips over Valencia, and then I think he's got a Terje and a couple of other forwards sort of sucking him in, and then Fiku makes the easy steal. But it just felt like England felt in their deliberate attempt to be as physical as possible to try and match France, they were just really ragged. Like you had Lewis Ludlam conceding a couple of breakdown penalties in the first 40 minutes for going off his feet and for coming at the side. You could tell that they'd been revved up by whoever in the dressing room, Ellis Genge, Richard who whoever it was, to go out there and show France what they were about. And actually it was sort of misplaced aggression. They couldn't get the power that they needed at the breakdown in the contact area and actually they were they were just too ragged. Whereas on the other side you had Gregory Aldridge absolutely steamrolling Freddie Stewart with that one carry and that sort of set the tone actually for what was to come. Yeah, there was, a, there was just a, a focus to how ferocious France were. It was it was really impressive. I, one thing
2: I was going to ma- I failed to mention earlier was that I don't think I'd really grasped how much this meant to France. I know they they sort of we, as we'd highlighted they'd been not drifting a little bit because they were still winning in the autumn, but they, their performances had probably dipped a bit. It was fair to say. And then Ireland were fantastic against them, weren't they? Um, Francois Crowe said afterwards that he was. That the side had been stung by by that criticism after the Ireland game, and another thing is the history. uh, Charles, you did a piece on how it was the last time that they'd won at Twickenham against England was in two thousand and five, and that Crow said that the um, that history was a real inspiration for them, and you could tell that there was a real focus to them. And just to make this point more widely, and we we seem to have made it kind of every every time on on during the Six Nations, but the Six Nations has again, to reiterate, felt like a Six Nations of two divisions where you've got teams that have, have moved throughout this World Cup cycle and this was a point that Steve Borthwick made afterwards. And this was really where you saw how much momentum and how much cohesion France have built up since 2019 and how far yeah. England have got to make, make that up. And I don't think they're 40... This is again, this is one of the stupid things like that adding two wickets on when you 're playing cricket or whatever, but i don 't think they 're forty three points worse than France. I think if they play that no. fixture again, they get far closer. however, um, I think things can unravel when you haven 't got that confidence and you haven 't got that cohesion and England are are reaching for that a
1: couple of points just on that. The best stat that I can give you about two thousand and five is that when France won that game in 2005, in the in the 05 Six Nations, Oli Chesson was four years old. Uh, and he started, of course, uh, on Saturday in the second round. every game. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, in the under five Six Nations. Um, and um, just on a, on a more sort of serious note, 2019, obviously Fabian Galtier in that World Cup, Fabien Galtier was not, the, was not the head coach of France, but he shadowed the team. He shadowed the team at the tournament. Um, and now look where that sort of groundwork has got them. Um, so this has been a long time coming. This has been a long time building. And, you know, what might have been for England and the RFU, because six six months ago, you would have said that the plan all along was for Steve Borthwick to potentially shadow Eddie Jones at the, at the 2023 World Cup and then go on to build for 2025. And now it just looks like a complete mess in comparison to what's happened over on the other side of the channel they 've they've sh- they've shown us up really france they 've always been the sort of incompetent ones with you know the, with the style but potentially not the organization and the logistics and and now've they've, they've, they 've got the style, the organization and the logistics, and we're playing England are playing sec- second fiddle in all in all stakes really
2: I'd agree with that but it takes lots to deliver on all of those things doesn't it Charles and the performance as you 've as you've rightly highlighted was special. You know, w- w- even with that in mind,
0: it was sort of so special, but no, um no fluke. That is, as in, I think we were sort of waiting for France after Charles. I don't know if you've said this already. I think we were sort of waiting for them after a bit of a slump in the autumn and not, and not, you know, an amazing string of performances so far in the Six Nations to um to blow the doors off a game. And, and that's exactly what they did. I, I think. Yeah. I think with England. It, there was so much talk about Smith and and Farrell last week that actually it became became kind of irrelevant. In fact, it, it became completely irrelevant because absolutely England England had no no platform for Smith to work. And actually, not that Smith can't play in the rain, of course he can. But the weather at Twickenham was was so bad that you sort of thought actually the the whole the whole idea that you want to play at pace and they spoke about that so much on Thursday at Pennyhill Park before um, when the team was announced and how. Tempo was going to be key. Ruck speed was going to be key. it was saying we haven't hit our 80-minute target for ruck speed yet at all in this tournament, and sort of hinting like this has to happen today. Well, I mean, it didn't. I think because of that, the Smith selection turned out being to be not even a disaster. It was just kind of it, it was barely a footnote in the whole story of the game.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I find the criticism of the English halfbacks you know slightly misplaced. Really, in fact, not slightly misplaced completely misplaced to play to play at pace it's not about just play picking and selecting quick players you know the pack were dismantled in all areas there was one good scrum in the second half where france had just switched their tight heads that was in terms of plus points for the english pack aside from a fairly decent individual performance from Maro atoje that that was it really and how could you possibly be expected as a scrum half and as a fly half to conjure anything when the eight blokes in front of you are being dismantled to such a violent degree that the english forwards were on saturday it, it, it you it, and and it's it's slightly short memories with with regards to jack van portfleet as well because when he made his when he made his debut in australia and when he was coming off the bench in that test series he brought pace he brought zip off the bench and he looked excellent. Now I think I don't know if that's just a general theme about scrum-halves coming off the bench um, because I agree that Alex Mitchell has brought some of that as well but is that just a a thing of scrum-halves coming off the bench and looking to increase the tempo and it being more of a sort of I don't know a, a conscious active thing that they're trying to do whereas from the start of the, whereas from the start of the game maybe there isn't that conscious active decision-making in the brain of the scrum half i'm i'm not sure but as i say i think that certainly alex mitchell has brought tempo but so did jack van Portfleet off the bench in australia
2: yeah that's, that's always so difficult to gauge isn't it i remember dan robson coming on and and, and making similar kind of s- similarly changing the tempo um during kind of his his time with with england under, under jones um yeah, I, I totally agree that I totally agree on two points there. The one that Atoji was among the kind of more defiant figures. He won a few. I think he won at least three turnovers over the course of the game. I've seen his performance criticised. I I thought he and Freddie Stewart were two of the very few to kind of emerge with their reputations um, from it. One point I w- will make. I think we're going to just go to to Owen Farrell's quotes after the, after this, but. I thought in his his introduction immediately brought a little bit of clarity so he could talk about the the ten debate not being a being irrelevant and it and it was given how how um inferior England's forwards were um but Farrell's organisation definitely made a difference um so whether that is Marcus Smith not being as assertive, whether that's Henry Slade not being as assertive um
0: I think that's a question that'll have to be looked into too. Let's, Charlie you've hinted it there let's hear from Owen Farrell now and hear what he had to make of uh, probably frustratingly having to watch the game from the bench for a large part of the game I've not gone into too much detail
2: to be honest at the minute um, obviously, obviously the, the, the result in the scorelines is hugely disappointing for us and it's, it's never nice um, most of the people in that room have been through it at some, at some stage um, not normally with England well, definitely not normally with England um, but uh, I guess I guess the thing is for us is it, it, nothing really changes. We've got to we got to improve. This will this this make us have a have a good look at ourselves.
0: That was Owen Farrell trying to make sense of what happened at Twickenham. I, I think if we I want to focus on France because otherwise we're, we're going to get lost in sort of England issues and we we'll, and we'll come back to further stuff with England down the line. So let's just talk, Charles. I'll come to you first. Particularly, I think about the return of Jonathan Dante at inside centre, which just made um, quite an extraordinary change to France's level of performance, considering he is, he is one player, but he just added so much on both sides of the ball, didn't he?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And we've been saying it all tournament to be honest. We've been saying when Don'ty's, how much of a loss is Don'ty to them, how much of a loss is Don'ty to them and, and Saturday proved it. You know, 6 out of 10 in Lekit player ratings. Jonathan Dante. If, you know, if anything must he's, try been harder. Over, he's been, yeah, I was going to say if anything he's been over complimented for the uh, for the history of for the history of Lake But um yeah, he was fabulous. He gives them he gives them direction in midfield. He worries defenders. He worries defenders in a way that Mofana at 12 doesn't quite Yet. I'm sure, you know, Mofana has lots of potential and he, he might in the future. And they might decide that his best position isn't actually at 12. They've played him on the wing. I think he's played at 13 for France. He certainly played at 13 for Bordeaux. But Donte coming back in, it scared England. It clearly scared England because they had um, Manu Tolangi playing that role in training prep so they they clearly had an eye on Dante and once you've got two or three players having an eye on Dante it's amazing how much other space there is for everybody else to exploit and when these French players especially the forwards um are so intelligent that they are able to exploit that and profit from that in it in an instant Flamand Olivon combining beautifully for that first try oh. and as you've already touched yeah. on as you've already touched on um Colsey um what a day Gregory Aldrete picked to, to to come back into form after sort of six or seven months in the in the wilderness. Really, he'd been sort of meandering a little bit. If that's not too 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 much of an impolite thing to say, but he wasn't meandering on um, he wasn't meandering on Saturday.
0: Anything but. I want to see the Sean Edwards um, hype talk pre-match. I want to know what was said. I want I want dressing room footage because they they came out red hot and they wanted it and Aldrete and Crow and. Um, Charles Ollivant and Flamont they, they were just wicked they were so so good Charlie- he, wr- he writes down a number doesn't he of the, the
2: Sean Edwards of the, the amount of points he thinks that his side should concede in the day I wonder what he wrote down I reckon 13 so I reckon he mm. was under par mm. um, but no on um, so the going back to this one ruck and we're talking about it quite a lot but Paul Valenza makes the tackle on um, Stewart and is saying he sort of rolls into the to impede a of, of a load of a load of England clearers and Ellis Gange, Ellis Gange was fuming with that and was kind of in Ben
0: O'Keefe's ear about that. Willemson was knackered, mate. It was 30 seconds into the game. He was so <laughs> tired. He but he's had to so, lie there. But he is one of,
2: he's super clever. I'm sure he did that on purpose. I, yeah, I put done. a clip on, it on Twitter and people are kind of um, questioning whether it was but I'm sure it was. But the guy, the jackal threat there was Dante. And they've got. And this is what the, the thing is about this, this French side. They've got these fantastic individuals but over this four-year period they've learned how their strengths really complement one another so you know tomak is actually a real he's a really interesting case because he's sort of this quiet facilitator and I actually saw um, France fans getting a bit annoyed sort of with his kind of that those grubbers into the into the 22 that are really kind of were quite skiddy and difficult to to navigate for England's backfield defense so interesting to see that because every time you're watching that um thinking about how England are going to deal with it it's not easy and you're thinking, God, the chase is coming on. The next ruck is going to be really, really hardly contested by these fantastic jackalers. They got, they've got, um, that back row, um, Colsey, I think you've done a piece on, um, the, the heft problem or the perception of a heft problem. England might have, um, England, England were five kilos heavier mm. as Charles, you, you pointed out at the time, according to the graphic that ITV Sport showed, it's just the balance of that France pack for me is the fact that you've got Villemza as a specialist tight headlock who's, who's helping out the front rows at the, the scrum and he's that mobile lifter in the line-out. But the rest of that back five, you know, rangy, athletic, skillful guys who are covering so much room, who are so, um,
0: so comfortable on the ball and moving the ball, that's just a fantastic team let's hear from one of the players involved in that physical effort who really shone um, Francois Crow he spoke to us afterwards maybe because uh, the physicality is, uh, wasn't good against Ireland uh, and uh, the French media talked a lot of, uh, about this so when you're a player and uh, the media talk to you uh, about this you, you really want to show uh, it's not the, the true, and uh, you really want to show we are good physic- physically, so tonight maybe we we show a better a better image of uh, of uh, a uh, bit. We were told um post match that there weren't any French players available that spoke English, but I think you can agree that. That's about It's quite good. Credit, credit, James Wilde, Planet Rugby for the assist. They just sort of went and I, I know he's, he's yeah. okay because yeah. I've done a couple of interviews with him. Certainly better than our French. Apart from Charles, actually, sorry, Charles. As soon as I said that, yeah. I realised that might be offensive. But, to
1: but you. Why was Why was Thibault Flamon not not available?
0: Uh, that would be what, done. TV a, a question maybe? for someone else. Yeah, he did. He did do TV on Intermat before um, we move on. Quite an interesting week for him because Jalibert got the knock in training. Didn't he? And there's been all that chatter sort of in the background about should it be Intermac, should they change and have a look at Jalibert. And then the week that Jalabert gets the knock, he, he sort of quietly had a stormer because it was it was his sort of tap back to of Flammeau for on second try. But also, what I really loved was was it his sort of outrageous out the back pass to Gail Fiki before the first try, with it leads to the cross yeah. kick, where Farrell's tra- Farrell's trying Farrell, to get Intermac yeah. down, and he sort of just backwards and he looks so casual because he sort of got Farrell sort of with one hand. And then sort of out the back pass with the other. I mean, do me a favour. Just and and I think very stylish man. If I had to sum up most of how France played on Saturday, it probably was do me a favour because some of the stuff was just just ridiculous.
2: Yeah, him and um, him and Ramos. We spoke, I think, last week about how Ramos has has kind of um, he's been preferred to Jaminet fullback for them, and he maybe is more of a little bit more of a ball player, more of a distributor, but. Those two in tandem actually take the pressure off Dupont a little bit more. And Otoji, that was part of Otoji's where I thought Otoji did well, was that he actually, um, I think without him, Dupont would have run, just done even more, even more of the stuff he really wanted to do. But um, because Otoji got to him a few times around the fringes, but those two distributors in tandem
0: certainly kind of, I think work nicely with with DuPont to give him a bit more space. Charles, just to finish on, on this England-France section, and actually to finish on DuPont, because we've sort of talked around him a little bit, um, is that his best uh, performance, do you think, so far in this already excellent career for France?
1: Um, it's certainly up there. I think that when France lost at Twickenham during COVID and they scored a very, uh, behind closed doors, and they scored a very similar try Uh, early on to what they scored, to their last try, that glorious backs move on Saturday. I think Dupont might have just been better that day and actually was on the losing side because England came back to win and sort of, uh, yeah, well, there's there's, there's parallels actually with that game because the England team then um, did face this sort of French onslaught uh, in a sort of an attacking sense, uh, but managed to sort of rally and and, and stick to what they did well and, and and nick a very narrow win. Whereas there was just no sign of that happening on Saturday. But yeah, Dupont was phenomenal, obviously, and he is phenomenal. He's uh, dare I say it? I mean, is he is he better already than 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 the, the great Sir Gareth Edwards as, as the greatest scrum half of all time? I mean, he's certainly in that conversation already because just I don't think there's anybody who excites. Um, as soon as he gets the ball, like DuPont in World Rugby at the minute, and in, in the ultra-professional era where you know the players are quite homogenised, for him to still stick out is, is mightily impressive, it
0: really is. I saw him post-match, and, and Charlie and I are not the tallest of uh, of people. He's shorter than us. I was looking at him in his trainers, and I was like, he is, honestly. I, I was comparing heights when he was in the mix, and I was like, blimey, he's actually shorter than us. Power to weight, he might have us. Uh, Yeah, yeah, but I mean, you know, I I was just, I was very impressed. Right, next we're going to head up to Murrayfield and Charles, you're going to tell us all about how Ireland, despite a patched together, pack and set piece, managed to beat Scotland. Okay, Ireland is still on track for the Grand Slam, all things going well, they seem to be able to cope with uh, any sort of disaster that comes their way. Charles, what did you make of them? This Grand Slam is, is in the bag, isn't it? England haven't got a chance next week this week?
1: I'm uh, I, I'm not going to quite... That certainly wasn't the tone of uh, Andy Farrell and Johnny Sexton's post-match press conference um, yesterday in Edinburgh. They know it's going to be a challenge. They know that England won't be as bad as they were on Saturday. Um, and it's a bit of a free hit for Borthwick's England, really. Um, having said that, they seemed very much up for the challenge. How good were they? In the second half, they were magnificent. Uh, in the first half, they were pretty good too. Um, but Scotland matched them in that first half. And actually, if Scotland had taken a few of their opportunities in that first half, there was the van der Merwe break where a magnificent um, try saving tackle from Hugo Keenan saved them. And then there was the chance that they had right at the end of the first half where I think it's George Turner was, or Stuart Hogg, they combined out wide and one of them was bundled into touch um, on, on the end of half time. Um I think the killer, the killer for Scotland, which is what Gregor Townsend alluded to at half time, was that they'd played a magnificent half of rugby. They'd played, you know, they'd scored that try that they scored with Hugh Jones at the middle in terms of phase play was probably about as organized and as patient an attacking try um, that Scotland have scored under Townsend. But the, the the real killer blow was that they'd played so well. They got Ireland on the ropes, and yet they still trailed at half time. after playing what maybe their best 40 minutes of rugby under Townsend. They still weren't leading, which psychologically must have been a bit of a hammer blow to them, especially when Ireland in that first half lost Caelan Dorris, Ian Henderson and Dan Sheehan, all to injury. It felt like the stars were aligning a little bit for Scotland with those three Irish losses uh, and the opportunities that they were creating. But then at half time you did think... Oh, God, yeah. I mean, they've played really well, but they're still trailing on the scoreboard. And there will surely be a response from Ireland. And there was.
0: That's got to be really tough for Scotland in terms of... We've spoken about... I think we've seen progress this year, certainly on last year. That that Scotland trip to Cardiff last year still haunts me in terms of not fulfilling potential potential and kind of, you know, not backing up a big win. I feel like we've seen enough in the first three games to sort of feel, to feel that they were making progress. This will uh, this hurt. hurt just because of the way, like Charles said, they sort of had Ireland uh, sort of in a bit of a grip. And all, but I think also they'll be frustrated because, no disrespect to the reigning Men's World player of the Year, Josh van der Fleer, but if you have a, a flanker throwing in at the line-out, you would think that you might try and apply all of your pressure to said line-out and try and cause Ireland more disruption. Charles, why, why didn't that yeah. happen?
1: I'm not really too sure to be honest. and actually Gregor Townsend in after the match um admitted that that was an error. um I think he I think Van der Fleer throwing in was was five from seven Gl- um Scotland got to his throwing for the final two lineouts, but the game was gone by then. Scotland did suffer a bit of disruption themselves in that area. Richie Gray went off after 6 minutes and Scott Cummings came on for his first international it was his first international appearance of the season, so maybe there was a little bit of rustiness there. I'm not sure, but it was certainly um a little bit naive and a little bit foolish of Scotland and actually a bit of a microcosm of the of the second half in that they were maybe just a, a second or a meter off the pace. They didn't score a point in that second half. Um, and Ireland scored eighteen, well, no, fourteen unanswered points, um, and and yeah, the, the line-out was certainly an issue. But to be honest, the line-out was an issue for Scotland all game. Ireland had that try ruled out early on. That was, I think, I think from reading the laws and the knowledge of the laws that I have, I think it was the correct decision. But blimey, they were fortunate, Scotland. It was a technicality, and Scotland were fortunate there. Um, Ireland were unhappy. Um, after the match, Andy Farrell Johnny Sexton were completely at a loss to explain it and were evidently displeased um, with the decision to disallow that try. And you do wonder if that might have been blown up into more of a thing had Scotland taken some of their chances and won that game um, because Farrell and Sexton were not happy as it was and they still won by uh, 15 points. So if they'd have lost, God only knows what the reaction would have been.
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. Glad to hear that um, Gary Ringrose is all right because that looked quite nasty when he went off. Is, Ru- to- is Russell all right? Limped off, didn't he?
1: Yeah, there was there was no mention afterwards that that Russell was anything serious, but I, I guess we wait and see. Um, yeah, he was replaced by Chris Harris late on. Um, I, you don't know if that was precautionary though, maybe it was a bit of cramp because the game was gone by then. He was it was in the eightieth minute that he was replaced. Um, on the injuries, Kaylan Doris Ireland are hopeful for for the England game next Saturday. Um, Ronan Kelleher, they're not sure about. Um, Ian Henderson is almost definitely a no because he was in a sling last night ditto Gary Ringrose so they 're going to be missing they 're going to be missing a few, but they hopefully will have some bodies to come back. i think I think Dan Sheehan as well was a bit up in the air, but certainly Henderson and Ringrose are almost definitely not going to be playing against England.
0: I think I read that Ronan Kelleher as well is is, uh, shut down, as Andy Farrell put it, because he did the same shoulder that he did against France last year, I want to say. Yeah, it was the
1: same shoulder. Yeah, absolutely. And he said it's the same fit. It's a strange injury, he said. I don't know, Farrell was a little bit sort of ambiguous with his his answer to that one. He didn't really say if he would be fit or not, but he did say it was a repeat of the same injury he did against France last year. But obviously he played on for a bit with it. He just didn't throw in at the line-out. He went back out after half-time played on for a bit and then basically at the first line out or first scrum, I can't remember what it was, Kean Healy came on and hooked and then Josh van der Fleer had to throw in from the open side.
2: So Eddie Jones kept talking about adaptability, didn't he? That was the, the word that he really smashed into every uh, press session that he possibly could and how that's where England had to get to. That's what impressed me the most was that, Ireland were scrummaging with three props they were throwing in with somebody who's obviously only done that on a very part-time basis and only on training yet with those platforms really compromised they were still their phase play is so good they're so intelligent around the other areas of the game that they're able to get through that in England you hold a mirror up to where England are England spend the last quarter of their game against France and, and the circumstances are different it's teaming with rain. they're chasing a game and obviously they haven't had this three-year build-up to where they are at the minute like Ireland have, but they had four, four front rows on the pitch and, and a um, and a back row covering the back line. And you can just see how much that can scramble teams. So I think that almost highlighted again, or accentuated, sorry, how well Ireland yeah. are doing and what a good place they're in. And I think that's why when Andy Farrell's talking about it being one of the best wins of his career or the best, that's, that's what he means. That's the, the manner yeah. from heaven, isn't it? From coaches that players are able to problem solve on the pitch. And that's that's really, really impressive given the pressure yeah. they would have been under. And we talk about, you know, sides potentially having a bit of neurosis when so much is on the line, when that grand slam is on the line. Um, they they came through that so impressively.
1: I mean, a funky thought, uh, 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 will teams start doing look at the example of Ireland and 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 copy that and I mean because if anything, the Irish scrub the Irish Scrub improved with Key and Healy at Hooker. They won a couple of scrub penalties, I think, and dominated on their own ball and put scotland under huge pressure van der fleer's arrows were amazing will more teams train an open side to check in and play three props in the front row i don't know i mean it, i mean it's it's amazing that that, that it's taken that to, to sort of blow it all wide open because it it works so successfully
2: it's a good good move on the espn fantasy games three hookers wasn't it because you get yeah you know,
0: yeah yeah so who knows Eddie Jones was desperately searching for a prop, a prop who could play both sides, wasn't he? When we, uh, when they came back from Australia. When, we, we, when <laughs> we saw him last. <laughs> when we saw him last. <laughs> actually, you know, this is what he really needs. Um, just a final note on this game before we we ta- chat about things in Rome. Um, the Caelan Doris injury is quite interesting. Hopefully he will play next week, but it almost throws the, uh, the player of the championship race kind of a little bit open. Um, that's back-to-back player of the match awards from Matt Canson I think because he was player of the match last week as well or he has been at least once before in this tournament Italy yeah I noticed he didn't swear in this post-match interview um is he come into the mix maybe I'm trying to Dr. basically what I'm trying to ask is who is actually who is Ireland's sort of out and out best player boring, boringly Josh van der Fla- John I don't van der Fla- think that's boring I no. just, I'm just curious J- James so Ryan James Ryan I'd have right James up Ryan
1: was awesome yesterday a
0: really awesome. good player um Oh, Jeremy behind the glass is Tom Hugo Keenan, which actually yeah, I he's, he's, a he's, he's, it's like well. it's like Van der Van der Fleer is boringly good all the time. So let's give it James Ryan mm. so far. But, I mean, it's
2: it's a big big step to get get in England. It'll be better. Um, so can we can we wait? Don't have to don't have to name it after four games, do we?
0: <laughs> no, no. I'm just curious. I just like the idea. I I had Doris sort of yeah, almost yeah. inked in after the first three rounds, but I mean, here we are. Okay, let's uh, let's jump to Rome. And, uh, well, one team finally managed to get a win, but it wasn't the favourites. The Warren Gatland second era is up and running after getting a victory over Italy, 29-17. Wales sort of dominating on the scoreboard for long periods. Charles, if i come to you first, we, you actually were the most tentative of all of us when we were talking about Italy being favourites for this and how they might mm. perform and... And whether they were handled the pressure, and I think Charlie and I were probably more, yeah, finally they're going to be okay. And you were saying, mm, I don't know, and you were right. So, congratulations, tell us how that feels. Thank you.
1: Uh, yeah, well, there's a first time for everything.
0: <laughs> what did you, uh, did you watching it just feel as though Italy uh, lacked the control that was required? Did they, were they just too loose? Did they get too sort of, did they want to? You know, throw the ball about and entertain a, a bumper crowd. I think someone said about sixty thousand at the Olympico, yeah. which is awesome. I'm really glad it about looked, that.
1: Yeah, it looked a really good travelling Welsh support. It looked um, a, a much bigger crowd than when I was there for France for Italy in the in the first round. Um, yeah, Italy were really poor first half an hour. Sort of to be honest, you could probably say first half. Wales exploited Tommy Allen at, at fullback. Obviously, they were Italy were missing Anji Capuazzo and they picked Allen, who's Normally, a fly half at fullback and and Wales did exploit that and made him look a little bit silly at times. having said that he he, no, he wasn 't on his own, and you can 't lay italy 's poor first half entirely at, at his feet um, having said that, I thought they had a a, a very very valid case for a, a penalty try when when Brex went over and was caught by owen williams as as, as the fly half was tracking back, and then Brex knocked on over the line. Owen Williams was in an offside position. Brex over the tackle, playing the ball, so the offside line was made. Bizarrely, the officials were talking about whether there was a ruck or not, but you don't need a ruck anymore for an offside line to to come into play. Uh, a tackle line is enough. Um, uh, so yeah, it was it was disappointing, but at least I suppose that the silver lining for Italy is they did stay in the fight. They improved in the second half. They scored some good tries. It wasn't a hammering. Um, And maybe a couple of decisions either way, each way, because after that penalty try was not awarded, um, Wales kicked a, a goal line dropout that was dropped and Italy had a player in front and Owen Williams kicks three points. So that's a 10 point swing potentially with a yellow card in a click of the fingers. That's a massive moment in the game in terms of the momentum of the game. Um, I still think there are positives for Italy, though they still attack beautifully, um, especially out wide. There was one, there was one first phase strike move early on in the first half that that cut Wales to ribbons. The, Wel- the Welsh midfield defence was at sixes and sevens. There were dummy runners everywhere. Everybody singing off the same song sheet, and it looked, it, looked, it was very, very easy on the eye, and it worked beautifully. It was wonderfully incisive, and more of that, and they could cause Scotland problems, especially if if that second half. If that second half for Scotland in in Murrayfield yesterday does a bit of a does a bit of psychological damage to them in in that how 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 sort of poor they were really in that second half, Italy could go and ruffle some feathers in 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 Edinburgh next weekend. Certainly,
0: I was just going to say now that they've sort of not won the game that we expected them to potentially win, they might actually now go to Murrayfield when maybe people are writing them off against the resurgent Scotland and, and actually pull off a bit of a shock. Um mm.
1: well, again it's it's a bit like England really. They've got little to lose. It's almost a free hit.
0: Yeah, no it is to be fair. Loved um loved Negri's try actually, his pickup was uh, was very impressive mm. for such a big man. Um let's talk about Wales. Uh and, and Reese Webb again, I just want to come back to him. First Six Nations start in, in six years. So proper sort of in the wilderness stint kind of coming back to this point great control of the game great sort of faith in him from Gatlin to deliver that kind of performance and and he really glued everything together for Wales quite well didn't he Charlie I mean we've talked about how Wales are just trying stuff aren't they in this tournament like they're seeing if you know that centre partnership works or that back row works and actually the whole focus coming into this game was trying to slow down Italy's Ball of the breakdown in possession. Well, actually, Italy just gave them the ball back through turnovers, so that was that was less of an issue. But but Webb sort of controlled things quite well.
2: Yeah, definitely. The uh, Ross Patsy's done some work on this on on Twitter. I think that the, that Gatland is kind of sticking with combinations and moving those com- combinations ar- around. So obviously, Reese Webb and and Owen Williams coming together as a package. And yeah, that was good. It was re- refreshing, as you say. And um, Italy, we. <laughs> I said a couple of times really wanted it to stay true to themselves and not clam up. It was almost like they they stayed true to themselves but just weren't as good as what they had been doing, you know, running out, running out of their own they running running exits just weren't as precise. And um yeah, they didn't do what England did against Wales, which was just absolutely not bother with playing with the ball anywhere near kind of their own 22. They did the opposite and kind of came across for a bit, but yeah, I do I, I agree with the p- pressure off at Murrayfield. Um, just hope they give it a lash again either way again we come back to it it's it's a better championship when you're thinking oh I'll sit down and watch this game this Italy game and it'll, I'm sure we'll
0: be entertained and interested by it it's going to be the best wooden spoon ever is what you're telling me if, That's they, what, if yeah, they lose the, the golden spoon we're going, to, yeah. we're going to look back on it fondly <laughs> the golden spoon no. golden, the golden gold plated wooden spoon very very finely Charles. just very quickly Wales in, in Paris what do you reckon can they nice. no chance <laughs> is no that what chance. you were going to say
2: No chance.
1: Really? I I honestly think there's more chance of England winning in Dublin.
0: Okay. Okay, well, that actually says it all. I can hear
1: people giggling in the background there.
0: The whole office actually heard that. They're all cackling. (laughs) Um, Just a quick shout out to the clever journalists who sensibly have stayed with the Welsh camp in uh, in Nice this week before they play France in Paris, having been in Italy last week. Love your work. Really respect it. We're not jealous at all. Really respect it. Okay, we're going to now have a look ahead to Ireland against England. Uh, One team is certainly the favourite for that. Okay, England against Ireland. This weekend, England trying to restore a bit of pride after a pretty desperate performance. Charlie, if I come to you first, how many changes do you think we'll make? Because it's quite a tricky one, isn't it? Because there's a case for dropping... About five or six or seven players, but that just leads to total chaos. So who do you think potentially could just if we talk about the team as a whole for certain positions, like Fly Half, which we're gonna chat about a bit more, who could potentially come into the side, Charlie, do you think? One force change, haven't we? Ollie Lawrence out with a at the hamstring.
2: Um Tuilagi is with quite nice or well, helpful timing, um is his suspension has elapsed and he's been in um, for the last two weeks, which is hopefully going to prove pretty handy for Steve Borthwick. Um, I don't know whether they want to reconfigure the pack and, and Johnny Hill's return to the training squad has something to do with that. So maybe one of, um, one of potentially Chesham drops to the back row. There are whispers, as I say, that Ludlam was going to be at eight instead of Don Brandt um, before Courtney Laws' injury. Uh, So there are those options there. I see the myth and, and, shock we're looking back at the midfield aren't we but so there are a couple of couple of combinations that you can either go obviously with two distributors whether that's smith and farrell or ford and farrell and to at 13 or one of the best performances that they've had in dublin in living memory was 2019 when they went farrell to laggy slade um so i would say it was probably it would probably be up to how much continuity that they can keep and whether they want to whether they see Manny Tulagi as a twelve or as a thirteen, I would have thought they'd see him as a twelve, to be honest, just because of the way it was, the way it seemed to be, um, the way that the, the squads have been shaping up, and the fact that Marchant played thirteen in that first first game, and then they went with Lawrence and, and Slade. But Slade, that would be that had been keeping Slade, and Slade was um, one of the quieter players, obviously, obviously um, replaced around. 45-ish minutes I think by mm. by yeah. Farrell, Early, yeah and Farrell immediately as I said said earlier me, immediately just brought that direction brought that organization so you wonder whether you, you fear for Henry Slade on the back of that he's the guy that drops out and they go with um, and what we said what we said after the very on the very first pod, I think after the Scotland game or the second one was that Smith and Farrell do at least have a little bit of existing cohesion Going into going into this game or recent cohesion from the tests that they've played together, so maybe that gives them a, gives them a little bit. But Henshaw came off the bench, didn't he, for Ireland? He's back, and even though they don't have Ringrose, Ireland they're going to have a they're going to have a pretty hefty, uh, dynamic midfield,
0: which is going to really test them there. Charles, it like seems it, um, it seems kind of bringing bringing Tuilagi straight back in and, and Johnny Hill straight back in would, would seem. Like a bit of a lurch, given they haven't played, and I appreciate too, like he's been banned. But given, you know, there's been a bit of continuity, and it's like, okay, let's just bring in back in a couple of heavy guys. But actually, is that what they need? Like, how do you add more power into this side without completely disrupting it? Mm.
1: Yeah, it's a good question because there's a number of those English forwards who really are going to be in the team this weekend because there isn't a better option. Not necessarily because they're deserving of their place after last weekend. You know, the back the back row was completely outplayed in all areas at every minute of the match. Um, I think Jamie George and Carl Sinclair as well have have not had their finest tournaments. And if there were better options, then they would be looking over their shoulders as well. The the, the thing about bringing Johnny Hill back in could he be looking at, at Maratoje at six?
2: That was my thought. Yeah,
1: obviously, 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 the line out is so crucial uh, against Ireland. And actually, the line out didn't go so well against France either. Um, could he be looking at Marrow at six, having two lumps, Chessam and, and Hill in the second row to to, to to get more power in the scrum? And Johnny Hill, of course, is an excellent maul forward. You know, that's probably his forte. Um, could he be looking at Itoji at six with maybe Ludlam at? eight and and Willis at seven because I mean Itoje for all of his strengths and he was one of the shining lights for England on Saturday he doesn't really play that much like a sort of traditional lock forward he does play more of a six really he is more of a sort of lock six hybrid so I wonder whether he's looking at that and 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 maybe for this weekend Itoje at six with with the absence of Courtney Laws and Willis at seven and, and Jack Willis was uncharacteristically quiet against France you know that in fact that's probably the quietest game i've ever seen him play either for wasps toulouse or england um, is that toulouse may- players
0: doing their homework do you think i mean there was there were what eight of them in the starting 15 or something ridiculous do you think they were just you know knew how to shut him down
1: perhaps but i just think it's also just very difficult as a jackler it's very difficult to get your hands on the ball at the jackal if your team is constantly on the back foot and reeling and the opposition are playing at such pace and offload also if it, france offload more than any other side so if you're offloading loads and and the ball is off the floor then how is the jackler going to win it they're not and it was telling that you know willis's effect on the game was minimal um, in terms of just and behind, are we all sort of in agreement that Farrell has to come back in? Well, is that is that is that sort of in some guys either at ten or twelve? I, I would say so. It, yeah, it's yeah, good I'm... you
0: have brought that up because we need to have a chat about who's going to start at fly half. So I think this is probably the time to do it. We've had Smith, we've had Farrell, Steve Borthwick. When we were at Penny Hill last week, had an interesting quote about George Ford. He said George Ford's going back. For more game time, and that he'd been tearing it up in training, and we're very lucky to have three world-class fly halves, which I thought was quite interesting. So, if that is the case, Charlie, I'll come to you first. Who is your starting ten in Dublin this Saturday? Oh, can I can I give you two options?
2: I I, I think I think if they go ten twelve, I think they go Smith Farrell, just because of the unknown factor. I think it's just such a monster game to bring back forward four. And I think you've just got that little bit of momentum with how Smith and Farrell have at least played together for a little bit. Um, Yeah, I would. I I would. I I agree that Farrell needs to be on pitch in in some guys. And I think that probably should be at 10. Um, And for me, that would mean to laggy Slade, although I'm really, was really low on how Slade went. And then... We're looking further in the back line as well. I think with Farrell at ten, he likes Malins at fourteen, and I think Malins might be under threat from his play for his place from someone like Henry Arundel. So what I'm telling you, Ben, is I <laughs> I'm really struggling to work this out in my head. I got asked this got asked this at full time and just went, I I have to be on the fence on that. I would have to it's why they get paid the big bucks that they've just gotta have some thought some thought of some sort of thought process to go through to get to get an answer
0: to this. Um, Is it a bit wasteful to have all three in the twenty-three? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, so Definitely.
2: especially when you've got someone like Slade, who even if you do go two distributors, Slade has got that little bit of history, although albeit a little bit of history covering covering the back three as well because he's so versatile. So, but but yeah, but geez, I was so 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 low on how how Slade played on Saturday just just from the lack of organisation outside Smith. Um, you know, Smith kind of likes to play fast and likes to play maybe to break out of structure, but England's structure things lack of structure let them down that was all, that was what that was what helped france to absolutely wreak havoc at the breakdown was that they were over committing and under committing and as soon as Farrell came on for the for the small window that he had um, <laughs> had as many backs as he'd like um you saw that there was that little bit more pre- precision and accuracy and that's what they're going to that's what they're going to need in dublin mm.
0: Charles, easy fly half of course um
1: Oh, I mean, I, I, I'm tempted by Farrell at fly half just simply because of the amount of centre options that that um, that Steve Borthwick has called into the squad. Obviously, Guy Porter of Leicester's been recalled. Joe Marchant's also there. There's Manu Tuilangi. There's Henry Slade, and Henry Slade was poor, as as, as Charlie's touched on against France. Um, but I do think Borthwick could do much, could do a lot worse than pick. Um, George Ford at fly half, potentially with Farrell at 12 and maybe with I don't know, maybe Marchant or Manu at 13 and it's going to be rainy in Dublin the forecast is terrible I mean th- th- he could do far worse than pick George Ford and his spiral bombs um, it's going to be an evening kick-off it's going to be dark, it's going to be rainy, it's going to be floodlights, England could just go there with nothing to lose and just try and stop Ireland playing just try and make a mess of it all and see if and see if that gets them you know over the line I I think what is very telling um Coles you've mentioned this already what is very telling was that first England got the free kick at at that is it the first scrum that they got a free kick uh, against France Marcus Smith attempted a spiral bomb off that free mm. kick. So that is clearly something that they've worked on. We, we haven't seen him do it that often successfully in an English shirt. So, certainly not to the level of success that George Ford executed that skill with Leicester. Uh, and it didn't work. He kicked it far too long. It was and And Thomas Ramos lapped it up. He was very, very annoyed with himself, Marcus Smith. And that was the last time it happened in the entire game. So it is clearly something that they are looking to exploit, and there is no better exponent of it than George Ford, is he ready? That's the big question. Is he ready? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But I do think he could do worse than pick Ford at 10 and just say, right, we're going to go there and we're going to be a bit boring and we're going to be a bit conservative. But you know what? If they went there and they were boring and they were conservative and they won 15-12, no one would care.
0: You could just go Ford, Farrell, Slade and just kick everything, couldn't you? I mean I, is that. <laughs> I, I think um yeah, I'm not entirely sold on bringing back man with a laggy. Um I'm not sold on Slade, especially uh, after the way he played on the weekend. It feels a bit soon for Ford. I feel like Smith needs another go. How did how did you go for sale? I think I think fine. I mean they lost. they lost and but they they got back into the game, but I think fine. But I I think they might end up back With Farrell at 10, just because of convenience. Um, Very quickly, to wrap up, because we're out of time, can we just get Ireland going to win a Grand Slam? Yes. Three yeses? Charlie? Big yes. Charlie, big yes. Charles? Yes. And I will say comprehensive yes as well. Okay, let's finish up today by hearing some of your readers' questions. Uh, We're going to start with one, I think, from Will Hobbs, just relating to England, where he says does this show that any players in particular are out of their depth at this level it seems as if most england fans were buzzing with the lineup pre-game i mean i mean that is true there was there was certainly quite a lot of enthusiasm for the uh the team that was named and sort of just to see what it was capable of uh, what do you think charlie Well, the names that spring to
2: mind straight away Mine, this is super cruel isn't it but i thought yeah. don brant had a tough day and we, we we flagged from the start that he was a really interesting selection at 8 um, for a couple of reasons, one, you're passing over someone like Billy Vanipo who's been there and done that um, in favour of a really different number eight. You know, a skillful, dexterous um, player. Not that Billy isn't skillful and dexterous, he is. But you know what I mean, sort of a more 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 focus on the footballing side of it. Another, he's not. He's totally overlooked. Sam Simmons, no game time, and now way out of the squad for this last game. We know that Zach Merce is coming back. We know that he's fond, fond of Tom Willis. And I thought Alex Dombrandt was good. He's had such a funny tournament, just good in patches mm. and then, and then some mistakes. And then also some, some times where maybe the pace of things has, has overwhelmed him. It, maybe is that fair to say? I'm not sure. Yeah. It's, it's such a difficult conversation. He would be one name, um, then I think Henry Slade had a really, as we said earlier in the podcast, I think Henry Slade had a difficult day. I would have expected more out of him as an as organising force outside of of um, Marcus Smith, especially. Um, those are the two. And that's the kind of one the jarring thing is that there aren't many. You can't go into the Premiership and there aren't many that you're picking out going, that's going to really elevate it. Yeah. Um, maybe... Someone like, if we flip the question on its head a bit, who would you bring in? Someone like George Martin, I think it's going to be a matter of time before he gets a look at at this level. Just defensive stopping power, looks a lot more mobile on in attack as well. But that's the kind of, one of the more worrying things about this is that you're not going, well, bin him and get him, get him in. Because, mm. you know, I,
0: I don't mind most of this both selection. That's the thing. It, also, such a fine line between... Being out of your depth and, and not being up to the standard of Test rugby and actually just playing really poorly, and I, I think that's the problem coming out of this game. While while you're betting into a new style yeah, under a new coach, you've got you've got raw players trying to bed in, and you've got experienced players not playing well, and who yeah, if you get rid of, then you are starting again with a new player. I mean, we yeah, we've sort of spoken about in terms of players who would come back. In, I mean, Tom Curry would come back into that, into that team, and Courtney Laws would come back into that team as well. But if you're if you think about players who potentially are never going to get capped again, pretty much everyone in that squad has a realistic chance because the, the well isn't isn't very deep. I mean, George Martin's one, T- Tom Pearson's another one who we, yeah. we keep sort of watching for London Irish and thinking with his ability to, uh, not just his jackling ability, which is very good and he's a good defender, but he's he's added to his carrying. Like he's a better ball carrier now than he was a season ago. He makes those, those line breaks. Really yeah, comfortable, comfortable on the ball. ball runs hard, He set up London Irish's bonus point try against Sale with another sort of break and offload. And and that's not the first time he's done it this season. But but again, you're running on not a lot of time here ahead of the World Cup to try out these players and see what's happened. And you've already had four games to to get a look. And that that opportunity's gone. So players that are actually out of their depth, the the only one I think who would come into the conversation is probably... It is probably Don but even then, he had good moments in this tournament. Yeah, and may, maybe,
2: maybe if you're looking at somebody that could be cast aside after this, maybe Malins, You think, but and again, he's been good. This is the this is the problem. I thought Lewis Ludlam had a, some really tough moments, some kind of really avoidable penalties and errors, but he's been one of England's better players this this Six Nations. So, you know, it's not going to be what, Steve Borthwick is ruthless. Don't get me wrong. Um, we've seen that from how he operated at Leicester, but. I don't think this is a Japan 2018 black hole game just because I think that it was a perfect storm
0: of things. Just uh, such a weird season for Maylands because obviously he sort of got left left out in the autumn. Sounds like he was made a bit of a scapegoat by the England, well by Eddie Jones and the England coaching staff came back in, played well against Scotland has played sort of well up until Saturday when positionally he was part of the, of the problems that England seemed to have in the backfield in terms of they just weren't covering space well enough. And, and I, you can't really put any blame on him for not getting that crossfield kick for the try because no, it, was it, was it, did, so, it was such yeah. a hard charge. It's not that. It's, it's the different aspects of the game and you wonder whether someone else is better suited there. So it's an interesting question, mainly because it's very hard to come up with a clear answer. Um, another question we had from Dr. Malcolm Harvey, which was, if England are down by three against Ireland next week with the clock in the red, do you kick a goal and take a draw to deny Ireland the Grand Slam, or do you go for the win? I love this question. Great question. Great question. My instinct would be, I reckon they are petty enough to kick the three and deny 100%, them the Slam. Hundred percent. I think. Also, maybe the draw in is, Ireland is a really. I mean, especially against soon, this, soon. this island, yeah. yeah. I, I don't actually know, also, how oh, good I, I don't know if I'd trust them to go for the win <laughs> and, and to try yeah. and execute it. Maybe I'm still thinking about the Imagine end of the celebrations season. as well, though.
2: Because, <laughs> or you just, and it would it be like a mall turnover and just mm. scenes to win the Grand Slam, such as sweet Romani. Post match dinner, it's as Peter, well. It's Peter O'Mahony telling the mm.
0: story about his Mortano Forever or something. Oh, I, yeah. Very, very good, very good, good question. You want to will this into existence. Yeah. Yeah. That would that would make for, I, I mean, I just like the idea of this because it means we'd get a slightly competitive game in Dublin. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm not God, expecting imagine it. Imagine I'm not expecting three. it. not expecting it at all. Um, a couple more questions. Uh, is Antoine Dupont the greatest scrum half to have ever played? I mean, I think not yet. But I think if, I, but it's a good, a good, <laughs> that was
2: so dismissive.
0: <laughs> no, inc- because I was suddenly thinking about who I rank above him, and I know Charles mentioned Gareth Edwards earlier. He was a really obvious go-to. I mean, if I'm thinking about great scrum halves sort of, of of my lifetime, I'm thinking about Fiery DePriya and and kind of people like that, and and Van Der and I don't know. Is he? I think he's in the conversation. Do, do you know he's hey. such
2: a he's such a he he is such a different scrum half to someone like Aaron Smith. And when Aaron Smith is playing phenomenally well I love Aaron Smith yeah right different sort of sc- different sort of scrum half he's fizzing away passes he's dinking little kicks into into space he's not necessarily making the explosive um it's like a boxer de points isn't he like he'll he'll bob and weave around a breakdown get get rid of a get rid of a forward and, and offload it and then set set France or Toulouse away um in that respect, he's probably slightly different. So he's a sort, sort of, as far as a general rugby player, he's one of the, one of the best I've ever seen for sure. Mm. And then moments like the fifty twenty two, they do take your breath away. They really are. And there was a chip and chase as well, just beyond the hour mark. I think off um, uh, off a little Farrell grubber and to Fielded it uh, deponded amazingly to get himself back in position to take the pass in the first
0: place. But then yeah, just ignited a counter as only he can. And just to move on to an interesting question is from Paul actually. So it, it, I think this is going to become an issue actually over the next few months in terms of should the RFU be allowed to select players from clubs outside of England? The Premiership is clearly not producing world class players anymore. It, it, so logistically, this has always been a nightmare for England because it's meant they've had. Limited access or less access to their players, and we've saw it's been interesting watching Jack Willis in this tournament because he's been the first player. Did we say since Tom Palmer for Stade Français about ten years ago? Was that who we said Charlie? Sch- Is that, I was Charlie. a hell of a shout.
2: No, I can remember. I can remember the question coming up, and remember thinking, "Don't know." I went. I went at um, to Wilkinson denied too long, but I yeah, think it, I think there was there have been a couple subsequently.
0: Basically, it's been a while, and so it's been quite interesting to see it in action again with Willis. Having going back, he went back and played half an hour to lose, didn't he, the other week? He went back in the first week, and I think, first foul of the week, and just didn't play, actually.
2: Well, they didn't want him to. I asked yeah. Kevin Simfield. Um, I said, look, because he, he was retained, obviously, on the Tuesday leading into leading into France. I said, what's what's changed? And he just went with a time around it and
0: also, I think, how well he's gone. Um, if you're being cynical about it, he went back to play for Toulouse a couple of Sundays ago. Was great. Had a telling impact. Helped with match-winning turnovers and a win over Racing and then came back to join the England squad, and then didn't play well for England against France. Yeah, so you would argue the, that it doesn't work. Yeah, off but, the back of a six-day turnaround, but
2: would but would the RFU as part of the new PGA be fighting for more access to say you can't go back for those, or what, ha, would they have a leg to stand on in those mm-hmm. in those situations? Probably not, because guys like Finn Russell have to go back, and now we're seeing him lim- limp out of game, so it's really difficult.
0: Um, the last point of that question I, I do think is quite interesting in terms of the Premiership not producing enough world-class players anymore. You are letting players go and play in a league with, with sort of, I'm not going to say an across-the-board better standard of players, but certainly very different, and that is only going to help with their development. And I think, I think we've seen that from Willis, actually, when we were chatting to um, his teammate, Francois Crow after the game. Like Crowe was saying that he's been a great addition and that he's been playing really well. You can see how a player benefits from that move. Who was the last
2: world-class player that the Premiership produced? Oh, man. I mean, Freddie Stewart's going all right. Right. Yeah. And that you look, at. I think you have to take it club by club and you have to take it. You have to take it as far as what sort of rugby that that club is playing probably helps. I remember Eddie Jones, when he took all of those Leicester Tigers youngsters on tour to Australia, he said they're playing test match rugby. So I know I know that Steve Borthwick's coaching them and therefore they're going to be more ready. I don't think you'd have many qualms with the guys coming through at Saracens when they did. That was a, so when a club gets its academy in order and is playing, you know, good good rugby and them and there's that there's that link there, we can't I don't think we could say that the premiership isn't producing those world class players but maybe not doing it as at, with regularity as they used to when the age grade system was um you know, seemed to be more uh joined up. That's another problem that is gonna or issue that seems to um need to be fixed because countries like ireland france even italy there's just more alignment there and that that would certainly help alongside um you know well it can only it can only help as far as developing players
0: for test matches sorry paul we probably need to get that about half an hour yeah we do we saw that come
2: up it's great to get our teeth into that at some stage
0: well just a final point i would say is that moving to france worked out quite well for zach mercer so, uh, yeah, well, we don't know yet. It sort of shows that, you L- know. He's, he's
2: the kind of the great white hope, isn't he? But who mm. knows? That's, um, yeah, I mean, but yeah, he's going well. You're right.
0: That's it for today, everybody. Thank you to Charlie and to Charles, as always. One more round to go then in the Six Nations with Ireland chasing that grand slam. Can they secure it on home soil? Come back on next Monday and we will have a recap of all of the final day of the Six Nations and look back on the tournament as a whole and all the highlights. In the meantime, please keep up with everything on the Telegraph website. There's going to be plenty of analysis throughout the week and please also subscribe to the podcast wherever you are listening to it. See you next week. Bye-bye.